Hello, and welcome to ng-build-pod, where we share with you our knowledge of Angular, all the mistakes we've made and some of the things we've gotten right. I'm Chris Kamak, and with me as always is John Graham. We are both full-stack Angular developers that love to share and be part of the developer community. We both work here at Miles Technologies in Lumberton, New Jersey, on the Engine team, and we have spent the last several years building out our Angular template for the Miles software division. So, uh, John, uh, what have you been up to? Well, I guess the biggest news in my life, at least, is I got a new car recently. Uh, traded in the 10-year-old Jeep uh, for a Tesla. She got a Model 3. So, Ooh. yeah, I've been really enjoying um, you know, that experience. It like, feels like you're driving a car of the future. Um, it is not uh, without issues. I do have a service appointment already because one of my cameras isn't working. Um, oh, no. Yeah, so it's a week old. <laughs> um but um you know, hey, you know, it's it's new and it's cutting edge, so you gotta expect still a little bit of problems here or there as long as they take care of it. You know. It's not like I can't drive it or anything. So um but yeah, that's been the, the huge, huge change in my life. Uh, other than that, just been keeping up running, as I say I think almost every podcast now. Been hitting some personal bests on like the mile, the 5k and distance wise so uh, that's been going well I'm looking forward to continuing to improve on that as the weather cools off here uh over the the next couple months but that's been me sounds about good you? Yeah. uh yeah i mostly uh i've been doing all kinds of things like we've been talking about playing guitar and stuff like that and and whatnot but lately my new jam is uh playing dead by daylight uh, which mm-hmm. is a video game uh, for anyone who's not heard of it before. And uh, it's part of, um, I'm playing it on uh, Google Stadia because I'm on that cloud gaming train. And uh, it was part of the um, free offering uh, once you are a pro member uh, of Stadia. Anyhow, uh, just tried it out, ended up really liking it. And uh, it's pretty fun to uh, pretend I'm in a slasher film uh, during the month of October. <laughs> so it's uh, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, and I guess, although maybe not appropriate for every team, for our team, uh, you know, we used to do the team lunches when we weren't remote. And, uh, you know, uh, I I'd thrown out the idea that maybe we should just play a video game instead uh, at lunchtime, just as like a way to chill and not talk about programming or work or anything. Um, and uh, I think you, you suggested this game and we played it for the first time the other day at lunchtime. And uh, I had like a ton of fun. I thought it was... A great game and it was fun to play with you guys and you know just relax in the middle of the day um so you know just throwing that out there if anybody wants to play a game you got a team of five it's a good uh it's a great game although yeah. maybe not totally appropriate for every work environment yeah, maybe maybe not you're uh you're you're uh very good with that chainsaw i must say so i did not survive <laughs> i'm uh i am not good <laughs> but thank you for the all right, so uh, what we're going to be talking about today is uh, we're continuing uh, this multi-part series uh, where we're talking about uh, dynamic form controls or dynamic uh, dynamic form as uh, we use it here in our template. And uh, today, what we want to do is sort of recap a little bit of uh, what we did in our first uh, part to this series. 
uh, and then talk about where we're heading and then sort of uh, use that as a guide to get us uh, into some more concepts uh, for this module. Yeah, we're hoping to wrap up uh, in one more part after this, right? So a trilogy, if you will, of dynamic forms. We're hoping. <laughs> we'll see if that goes that way. Yeah. So, John, uh, cool. you want to give us a, a little taste of where we were at the end of the first one? Yeah, I'll go over that real quick recap, and then we'll do some quick tips. Quick recap, quick tips, and then we'll we'll dive right in. So uh, basically, in the last episode, we discussed um, the concept of a form control and what a form control represents outside of what Angular thinks it is, right? So Angular has the concept of a form control, but we've kind of extended that because to us, you know, usually uh, a text box is not the only thing that's going to go in a form, right? You're going to have a label, you're going to have validation, you're going to have like the asterisks, the red text, uh, you may have things like tooltips. There's a bunch of different things that are actually part of a single form control uh, in the sense of when we're building forms. So we discussed kind of that format and that layout um, and, you know, kind of how you can structure that in a way that makes it reusable, uh, I think was the majority. What Did I miss? Did we go over anything else? No, no, it's exactly correct. What we did is we created our first abstracted input control. And in this case, it was just a straight up text box. Um with a label and some validation stuff. I think that's exactly what we did. And I think it was, uh, you know, pretty concise, but also got us started. Yeah. And so like, you know, now that's a great simple example, but you know, in this episode and the next one, hopefully finishing up in the next one, uh, we really want to start to talk about expanding that scenario, right? So going beyond just the simple input control, how do you do things like uh, select lists, radio buttons, um, you know, numeric controls, uh, you know, all kinds of different things that you can have, uh, date, time, pickers, things like that. So we're going to start to expand on that a little bit. Um, we're also going to discuss uh, today a lot about how we do the mapping of figuring out what the control is, right? So you may have, um, you know, how do you know you want a select list? How do you know you want um, a checkbox? Things like that. Absolutely. And as you pointed out, let's get into our quick tips uh, before we dive right into the subject. So, John, I think you had one for us involving air? <laughs> question mark? Uh, yeah. Question mark? <laughs> air does exist. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I have two, uh, hopefully, you know, two quicker ones uh, that, that are pretty interesting. So the, the one thing that I've invested in recently, and I don't have any scientific data because the detectors to give me scientific data are very expensive, so I haven't uh, purchased them yet. Um, but I've invested in an air purifier uh, you know, working from home now, uh, I'm in this room for eight plus hours a day sometimes. This is also where I play video games. So if I come here at night, I'm in here even longer. Um, and uh, I've done some reading about how uh, air purifiers can actually improve your cognitive abilities. So your abilities to think and work through problems and stay focused. Um, so I've had one going for a couple weeks now. And um you know, just run it all day while I'm down here. And um, it definitely feels better. I've noticed a difference in my ability to kind of like focus, get through tasks, things like that, but no scientific data. But I'd check it out if you're in the market. Um, you know, you can get them for a reasonable price. Uh, there's some crazy expensive ones. I kind of went mid-range um, and I like it. And we'll, I'll put a link to the one I use, which is Blue, it's called. Uh, Blue by Blue Air. <laughs> they went really uh, crazy with the blue there. 
Uh, and it's real quiet, and, and I like it. Uh, and the other one I wanted to talk about real quick is uh, I've been doing the external bootcamp, and we're focused on some basic JavaScript stuff. And I've really just like seen a lot of cool things that I forgot about or didn't know about. Uh, just by going over like the the basic JavaScript docs, like the one I shared with you guys today was that um, where you can create an array from a regex compare, yeah, like a an exec command in JavaScript that does that. I'd never seen that before. Um, I'm not going to teach it because it's like you know not a common thing, but uh, I just thought it was interesting that uh, you know every once in a while you go through these like real basic docs and you still find like new things that you never. Yeah, there's a out. lot out there that um, I think. In a lot of cases, we may forget about, or maybe we didn't take advantage of a lot in one project, so we stopped thinking about it. And oh yeah, I remember that thing. That that thing was fun, you know, or interesting to use. Um, that's a that's a good point. That's a good point. We should all go take a look at that once in a while, just to refresh ourselves of what's out there. Yeah, and I saw like CSS in console logs. Like you can apply CSS to your console logs to make it have like blue backgrounds and stuff. It's just like interesting, you know, like things that. Never like I've seen that before. I know I've seen that before, but I never like thought in my head, oh, they put a CSS class on a console log. It's kind of fun to look at. Yeah, that is pretty neat. Uh, so, how about you? What do you got for our quickie tippy? Yeah, uh, mine's going to be uh, hopefully pretty short here. Where I just really want to remind people that you should try to prioritize um, your work life's environment. It, you know, obviously, when we're remote, this is important, but it's important anytime really. And um, what I'm what I'm really saying here is, is that you spend a lot of time coding and uh, working on problems and, uh, you know, really taxing yourself as far as uh, the cognitive ability is concerned, uh, working on logic and things like that. And uh, sometimes it's it's hard to remember that you should also take time to consider your your work life and the balance of it. And how, how does it feel to work on the team that you do? Um, I'm bringing this up partially because I feel like um, the team that I'm on here with John is is a really good uh, model for what works. Uh, and I say that because I feel like we've worked on it to make it that way. And uh, if I notice that I'm not enjoying something, if I, if I realize, hey, this task is really bothering me, or I, I don't like the way this is going or the way that it feels, or I, maybe I just don't like the amount of interaction that I have. Uh, I have a situation that I've developed with with John where I can go over those things and uh, he'll at least hear me out, if not directly make changes that affect me. Uh, and it's I think a lot of cases uh, you'll find that if you're open with your manager or with your division head, uh, if you're open with them about things that are bothering you, you're going to find that they have solutions and they're willing to work with you. They understand, or at least they should understand, uh, how easy it is to burn out. And uh, in order to combat that, you've got to get creative sometimes and really listen uh, to what your developers are saying as a problem out there and, and help them uh, find solutions. So I just want to make that a, make that quick tip that you guys should prioritize that and actively work on it. Yeah, and I'll just quickly add to it is like you were saying it's good to be honest and open with your manager and your division head, but like you know and you in particular, you know, you're just not doing this for yourself. You do it for the rest of the people on the team, which is how I think it helps, right? Like, so when you see somebody else struggling with this, you'll say something uh, and, and you'll pull them out of it. And uh, that's part of it as well. 
right? So if you do that and you're open and honest and you're discussing things with your manager, then, you know, those two things combined, I think, is what really helps the team start to gel on that. And, uh, you know, I definitely agree. I think that, you know, we're really good at, you know, keeping each other uh, from going off the deep end, uh, which is nice. Yeah, and I'm just going to throw something real controversial on the end there. If uh, if you happen to be working in a place where that sounds scary to have that kind of open communication going, you really should consider finding a new place to work. It's just that's not a good situation. That's a abusive situation for you, and you should get out of it. Yeah, that's why I left my last job. <laughs> <laughs> yep. All right. So so right into the main topic now, right? Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about, um, you know, uh, mainly focusing on expanding the data types here. And uh, before we jump too far into the topic itself, let's discuss a little bit about, like, you know, how we even came across this problem, right? Because I think, you know, what we're trying to do as we break down and explain this dynamic forms concept is sort of backtrack to, like, well, how do you even get to the point where this is a problem you're solving? Right, because at the end the solution is great, and you can see how it helps. But it's not always easy to see what led to you know that solution. Um, and I think that you know maybe we could talk a little bit quickly about you know our our model structure and how we got to the point where we we needed this uh, this sort of or where we felt like we needed this kind of uh, kind of help with the dynamic forms. Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll just jump in here and say, hey, uh, we originally did this just because of the model. That was the only purpose originally for us to do this kind of mapping. Um, what what happened is is we were utilizing um, Angular JS uh, in our template years ago, uh, and uh, we realized as we looked at the benefits of going to Angular and its use of TypeScript that you know one of the things you get out of there is type safety, and uh, we use C Sharp on our back end, so we're used to having type safety there. So having a front end that marries a little closer to it was really uh, attractive. But now, in order to do that, that means everything in your database that is an object that your front end might touch, you kind of need an interface. You need some way to say, these are the properties, here's the data types they are, and that how do you do that? You know, how do you do that in a sustainable way? I mean, if we asked our project teams to maintain all of those interfaces, I, I, I think that would be a hard ask. And I don't think that it would be kept up with as rigorously as we'd like. Yeah, and I mean, we're, we're talking about, you know, more quantity versus, you know, uh, depth when it comes to applications, right? So we have team members that are managing and maintaining four, five, six different applications at a given time, maybe more. Uh, and these applications aren't always the most complicated, right? They're not always the most difficult where you have like a crazy, you know, uh, entity relationship or something. Um, so, you know, it's not even a matter of like, you know, can they maintain it? Do we want them to maintain it? That's one piece. The other piece is, do we want people to spend their time and energy on it, right? So, like, does it take a lot of thought and depth and understanding to write an interface that represents a POCO class in C Sharp, like just a simple class? Uh, I mean, to me, the answer is no. I mean, the, you know, a lot of where we're building with this dynamic forms is to automate the boring stuff. Right? Like we said in the first episode, who wants to write, you know, a form? <laughs> who wants to write HTML after you've done 100 of them? Who wants to write a model after you've done 100 of them? 
it's just you know it, it's just boring it doesn't require cognitive ability and we got to automate it away so let's talk a little bit quickly about some of our structure so that people can um you know follow along you know at least uh tangentially into the the structure we have so i think i mentioned it before just a reminder we do use microsoft sql server for our database uh and then like you said we have c sharp and we use entity framework and do like you know the typical orm tools that that will manage that um but you know obviously with angular in the front end there's really no tools out there um that are going to sync it up with a c sharp sql server backend right like that doesn't exist as far as i'm aware um so what we found early on is we wanted to have some process that when we update the models in the back end, because we had already fixed this problem in the back end, right? These are already auto-generated in the back end. Um, we wanted to have a similar process that could handle that for the, the front end as well. And that's where we kind of started saying, hey, well, can we leverage the tools we have on the back end, which are just T4 templates? They're basically just, you know, template code files. Um, and can we extend it to say, you know, to give us something that the front end can work with, right? Because uh, the front end isn't going to be great at reading C sharp files, <laughs> uh, for for instance. Yeah, and I'm I'm thinking, you know, it's it's important to point out that our flow is that we will define in a SQL file uh, on the back end. We'll define a SQL project in Visual Studio. And the SQL tables that we're defining will have the properties and the data types right there. When we push that down and create a database locally that we're in our development environment, we can then read that database to automatically create these model files. So, so what's the end result? We define everything in the SQL database project. And then we don't redefine it any place because it sort of automatically generates everything we need from there. Um, so if I define a uh, table of customers and it has uh, a name property and a type and a status or something like that, then uh, I push that down. We use uh, POCO uh, for a reverse POCO where it's actually reading the database and creating C-sharp classes that represent each of the table objects and their relationships for that matter. Yeah. And it was good to have that tool because I think that kind of helped guide our thought, pro our thought process on how to handle the front end, right? Because one of the challenges you have is that you're translating things from a SQL data type to, you know, a data type in a, you know, di completely different framework or language, right? So we have C sharp, which does it on one end, but now we have this new thing called TypeScript, right? So for instance, you know, there's a varchar field in SQL. There's no varchar field in TypeScript, right? <laughs> you know, there's needs to be some translation there from varchar to what you would use as string, right? But then you have things like nvarchar. You have things like double. You have things like long. You have things like decimal, money. So there's a bunch of different data types, you know, that we had to start to imagine like, oh, okay, how do we take this data type in SQL and translate it into, you know, what would be the translation in the TypeScript world uh, for this? So this tool that we're using kind of was doing that for C Sharp, right? It would take these data types, convert them to C Sharp data types. And we were able to kind of, you know, review that and say, okay, yeah, I, I see kind of how this is working and, and I like this structure. And we can do something similar for TypeScript. Yeah. And in our situation, just to close the loop here, um, 
we ended up creating a, a file that's a JSON representation of our database. And uh, from that JSON representation of our database, we were able to run a, a templating engine for the front end. In our case, we used Yeoman as our templating engine. And it reads the JSON data that represents the model of our entire database. And then it creates an individual interface with the data types selected based on what you were just saying. It, it reads and creates those interfaces for every object in the database. And it just puts them into a folder called model on our front end as, um, I think it creates them as um, .d.ts files, I think. Yep, yep. Yeah, so it's creating them as interface definition files. And then in our Angular project, we can just pull those in, import them anywhere we want. And if it if it's an I customer, which is just I being the convention of an interface starting name, if it's an I customer object, now I already have type safety for all the properties. And again, I just want to point out this flow. If I then down the road a month later decide customer now has a new thing called um, industry code, it's a brand new property. All I have to do is create that in the SQL, push it down to the database, pull that back into the model in the back end, which creates the JSON file, then we use the templater to create the interface. So really, I, I wrote it in one place. And just by running some templating engines, now it is uh, pushed everywhere else. And everything's completely in sync all the time. Yeah, and so let's maybe just quickly talk about that uh, JSON file a little bit more, because I think that that's kind of the, the key piece here, right? And, and like you mentioned in that final flow, it's something that we're creating through our process. So we've defined the structure, defined what's in there, and we're going to create it as part of that flow of updating an entity. Um, so I think it's good to just kind of talk about a few things that we included in there, and then that may help people understand um, how you can generate the, the interface files. So let's just take a, a, a an example entity, and we will try to keep it focused. But you know, you can extrapolate that you know there's maybe you know, tens of or hundreds of these in this JSON file. And if you think about the entity customer, right? So you have a table in your database customer. You have the entity customer. So you want to create this interface. So the easy thing is you need the properties, right? These are the columns, things like name, maybe a status, maybe uh, an address, maybe um, you know, uh, you know, the industry code, like you have mentioned. Um, but inside of the properties, we want things like, well, what is the type that we expect it to be, right? Like I said, varcar is one type. Uh, string is the type in um, in uh, TypeScript. Um, but what else can we pull from that? So you know, we're going to build things on the front end, like validators. Like you had talked in the first episode about, like something like a max length validator as like an advanced you know, uh, concept to add to the form control example. Um, well, you know, why not just look at what the the length is on the data type, like varcar 50, varcar 200, and take that information so that we can use it later on the front end to build the validator, right? So you're going to include uh, maybe like the max length. Uh, and that's like a good mix of what's in the properties. Um, but I think we usually want to pull some more stuff in, right? Yeah, I mean, you had mentioned, like, imagine that we've got a status that we're storing. Um, in that situation, you, you probably have a list of possible statuses. 
and we'll call those customer statuses just to keep this example clean. Uh, and then in the customer database itself, the customer table, you probably have a property called status ID, which of course is representing which ID within those statuses is specifically assigned to this customer. So that's really, in that case, a foreign key, right? So we're saying customers has an ID that matches to the table customer statuses. And therefore, this is a connecting point. This is a point where if I were to access the customer uh, itself, do I know the name of the status that is selected? Not until I traverse to a new object, right? Like customer doesn't have a property called status name. It has status ID. So I would need to have some kind of property that's going to represent the selected status for this customer. Yeah, and I think that, you know, this is where when you're building the interface, you're going to have two .d.ts files, right? You're going to have one for customer status, one for customer. And customer is going to actually have as a property the type of customer status, right? So that you can access this object right. uh, off of it because it's it's kind of like a, you know, it's a navigation property or foreign key property. Mm -hmm. um, so by having that in the JSON, you can tell the front-end templater that, you know, I want to import this other uh, type file and I also want to uh, make it as a property on here so that when I'm accessing it uh, later, I have that ability, right? Yeah, exactly. And what we're doing is we're, we're mirroring what is on the back end as Entity Framework. Entity Framework already has this concept of if I were to access a customer by getting its ID from a table, uh, then if I included the customer status, then uh, it would have a property on there called dot customer status, uh, which would be the one that the status ID was referring to. Yeah, and I think what we can do is we can include in the show notes like a link to a gist and we'll just paste in like our customer example mm -hmm. from the backend model, Jason, just so you can kind of see what we mean in a you know JSON structure of how we kind of put it. And I think that will help uh, help you kind of understand these these concepts a little bit more. Absolutely. So I think the next thing, you know, to, to really drive home as well with this is that these are kind of built to be auto-generated and auto-refreshed. Um, so, you know, typically we want to try to include as much information as we can in there because we don't anticipate that developers are going to go in and make any changes to these files, right? They're not going to add properties or do anything like that. We can talk about, if we have time, ways that they can do that still if they need to. Um, but the key thing here is, is that there's just a process you run that generates all of this stuff builds out all the interfaces, builds out all the files, uh, and has them ready to go to be used. Right, absolutely. And so that brings us to how does this relate to dynamic forms? Because so far we've talked about a model idea and the way of maintaining interfaces within Angular, but an interface itself does not help us build a form, at least not in an automated way. Um, so what we would need first is we would need this concept of, okay, if I'm going to be taking all the SQL data types and I'm going to be re referencing those to create interfaces, well, will those SQL data types also help me select the correct control for in the UI? Like if it's a Varkar 50, I probably want a text box, right? But if it's a yep. Varkar 2000, well, a text box is a little bit much to be holding a thousand characters. Maybe that should be a text area. 
And then, you know, to take that example even further, what if it was an NVAR car? So an NVAR car in this case is going to be able to handle all kinds of things like special characters and whatnot. And generally in our world, when it's a VAR car, we expect just a simple string. And when it's NVAR car, well, that could be something that would pop out of a WYSIWYG or what you see is what you get editor where uh, it's got HTML and CSS and all kinds of things in there and script tags, possibly, who knows? Um, but it's a lot more complicated than simply just a string. And uh, so if it's NVARCAR, what would I use to represent that? Probably a WYSIWYG editor. So those are three things that, as far as TypeScript is concerned, are strings. They're just straight up strings. There's no, there's no differentiating between those three things. But SQL says those three things are different. Varkar 50, Varkar 2000, and nvarkar probably max if I'm if I'm being honest because that's going to be like a who knows what's in that thing. Yeah, and like you know you can even extrapolate to things like bit fields are probably going to be checkboxes, right? Because they only have a true false value. Exactly. So hopefully you kind of get the point that you know you can through some simple you know just logic figure out like what's the typical. Uh, form control scenario, uh, and when I say form control, I mean you know the the actual type of the control that you want on the screen, you know uh, that that you were just talking about, just by looking at data types. All right, so we're going to jump forward though in time just a second, right? Like we're going to say that we actually have created a lot more form controls than just the text box that was in our first part of the series, right? Yeah, yeah. So we're going to say we have a text box. We have uh, an input uh, form option that is a text area. We have an input form option that is a WYSIWYG editor. Mm-hmm. We probably have many more. Uh, select select dropdowns. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Dropdowns for our select lists, which would be an example of with the status ID and customer status. Probably want to drop down there so I can select a different status. Mm-hmm. So, so if we have all of those controls and we're jumping ahead and saying, those controls now exist. We've created abstract versions just like we did in part one for a text box. The question becomes, well, how do I connect those dots? Because I have enough information possibly in this JSON file, right, John? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, so the the concept here is that, you know, now that you've built the model, which, you know, in the grand scheme of things is the easy part, <laughs> even though we've been talking about it for 15 minutes, uh, you need to now figure out how you want to build a configuration object that's going to know that that model property maps to this control type, right? Mm -hmm. So we've taken the thing out of SQL and we've decided it's, you know, TypeScript representation in a model. Now we need to take it out of a model concept and think of its form representation and what it looks like on a form. Mm -hmm. So the way that we've kind of done that is, you know, in conjunction with creating model files like interfaces, we also create something that we call form control classes, right? So in our example we've been following, we would have the customer.d.ts, which is the interface, and we would have a customer.formcontrols.ts, which is going to represent the uh, object that we're going to build in order for a form control to understand what this property is going to be. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so if we take a look at the concept here, imagine that we're building out a form 
that has, you know, either via object keys or some sort of array, has some sort of understanding of all the properties that could be represented via this customer object and what each property would translate to uh, as a UI element, including possibly what kind of validators should be there automatically, what kind of validation should be there, um, how do I get the value out of this thing, like all the types of things that you'd need to know if you were spinning up a control to represent this customer object. Well, when I say a control, this is where we start to get you know a little bit uh we got to watch our terminology because when i say control for a customer object that's really a form that's a full form with multiple form controls in it so maybe uh i'll try to do better about that and i'll say that one is a form group and the other one is a form control so what we're defining in the customer.formcontrols.ts is a representation of what a form group for customer would look like, which in itself will have multiple form controls. Right, like the model file represents the entity of customer, the form control file represents the whole form of a customer, right? So it's kind of like the the, the, the whole grouping there. Yeah. Um, and, and so what we've done is we've actually just created a, uh, we've kind of split it into, you know, a couple different things. And along the way, we've, we've heavily changed this because we've, you know, people come to us with, well, I want to change this one control to be this different type, or I want to change uh, this, this, the, the way that this one looks or where the label is, or I want to move it, or I want to, you know, or I want to just write my own component and pass it in. So we've come up with like tons of different scenarios, but, you know, day one, it was pretty simple where it just, you know, like you said, it defines what the label is going to be. It defines what the form group is going to be. It defines what the type is going to be. Right. So here's where we use the Yeoman templater tool to look at that JSON file, look at the type, which we've determined to be, you know, like a foreign key or a string or a number, whatever it is. And we will put into this form control based on what's in that JSON file. The type of this control is an input control or an input numeric control or a select list control. Here's where we're actually making the decision. Um, at the configuration level, what this form will look like, right? Because like we're saying before, this is the whole customer form. It's going to have name. It's going to have industry IDs. It's going to have, you know, status. Um, so what is that whole, what is each piece of that form going to look like at a configuration level? And in next episode, we're going to talk about, well, how do I take this configuration and actually render it on a form in the, in, in the Angular component? So hold on to that. I know you probably have a bunch of questions. We're just trying to set up the structure right now of what it will look like. So just to get back to my point, it's going to define things like the form group, the label, uh, the type of control, any validators uh, that you would need to have, any sort of uh, default values maybe that you would want to put in there. Uh, how does it get what's in the select list, right? Like the, the different options that you would want to include uh, inside of there. Uh, all that kind of stuff. And and for our purposes, we've split it into two different uh, objects. We have a view object and a form object. Because for us, you know, we create an interface that has a view only. And we have an interface that's an edit, right? So, like, you click it to go into edit mode and it switches all the controls. So, we kind of have two objects, which I think is a pretty nice thing. But you could create a bunch of ones, right? So, if you have a bunch of different views, 
uh, for how your form looks, you can just you know create a bunch of different configuration objects, and you have all the different visual representations of the customer form uh, in a in this configuration object. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I'm also going to just point out here that um, when we talk about what validators should be included. Um, you may have heard before where we said that we're deriving max length based on like if it's Varkar 50, well, 50 is the maximum amount of characters, so max length is 50, and that's pretty straightforward. Uh, but another one that you can derive based on your table is whether it's required or not. Because if it's a non-nullable field in your database, that's something you can read and understand. It is, it is either nullable or not nullable. In our situation, we say if it is not nullable, in other words, it can't have the value null, well, then it's required because clearly you can't have null. <laughs> so, right. so that's how we're making that, uh, that guess. Yeah, and the nice thing about this configuration object is it's not directly a one-to-one -one, uh, mapping of what your customer form must look like. It's just an object of all of the possibilities of what your customer form could look like. So you may have some uh, column in your table that's not null, but you, through some backend logic, set that field, right? That's fine. It's in your configuration. You just don't use it. You just don't ever render it. Uh, you know, and like I said, we'll get to that part. So don't, you know, this, the whole purpose is just to lay out all the possibilities and then give the person that's implementing the form the options on how they can actually select and use these different um these different possibilities like so for one thing is we have a, a version column for um handling concurrency right that's right. never going to show in a form like we're not going to let them pick which version they want it's in the configuration because you know it's you know it's just easier to try not to filter things out and just put it there but it just never gets used because it doesn't make sense right and that's a decision of the uh the developer at the time absolutely so yeah we're uh, talking about like a this is this is defining the base or the what does the base element look like? Uh, when you go to implement it, you can do all kinds of things. You can make lots of changes. Uh, none of these things that where we've made, I said guesses earlier, but I think the right way to say it is assumptions. You know, we've made assumptions on what uh, UI element should represent this field. But what if we're wrong? What if this this in this case uh, they do not want to type ahead? They explicitly do not want to type ahead, even though that's what our assumption was that you would want. And instead, they want radio buttons. That's probably a horrible example, because <laughs> radio buttons, instead of type ahead, it's probably a thousand things long. But the point being, what if some scenario comes up where our assumption isn't correct? We, we're allowing them to take this base thing that we've created, and they can make any changes they want in between that step and actually rendering the form. And as you said, John, we're not going into the part about how to render these things, how to how to connect the dots between these abstract controls that we've created and this form uh, class, so to speak. But we are talking about how you might want to change that form class in some way. Yeah, and I think it's probably a good idea right now to just kind of quickly recap the um, kind of process to get here now that we've introduced, you know, the terminology of form control and, and interface and things like that. Um, so that, you know, it hopefully is uh, solidified for our next episode, which is implementing uh, this structure that we're building.
right? So again, the first episode, we talked about creating the abstract controls that can be then implemented in a form uh, on a page, right? And when we say an abstract control, we mean a control that represents an input, uh, a control that represents a text area, a control that represents a select list, a, you know, these simple building block uh, control types, we're abstracting them into components. Now, in this one, we've said, okay, now that we have these abstract control types, we want to be able to select them dynamically, right? We want to be able to know, just based on our model, which control type makes the most sense in most cases. And again, the goal here, at the very end, the, the, to the whole goal, right? When I think we said this in the first episode, as I said in a meeting one time with you guys, wouldn't it be great if we never had to build a form again? Right. If we never had to write HTML, write the JavaScript, do the CRUD to build the form. That's the whole goal. So in episode one, we started with the building blocks of the controls. In this episode, we're figuring out how can we determine, um, you know, from the database, what that form, like which that form will look like in its entirety if we wanted to implement the whole thing. So we're, we've, we've have a process where after you publish your changes to the database, you run a template file, which takes those changes, creates the C-sharp classes, also creates the JSON file that represents what the front end could look like. Uh, then you run the Yeoman tool, which is a separate um, uh, you know, templating process, to take that JSON file and create the models on the front end. So the one benefit, if you don't go all the way with form controls, right? Like just say this form control concept's crazy and you don't want to do it. I would say just take the model part because now you have models that are synced between the front end and back end, right? And with AngularJS before TypeScript, you used to always have to do this work manually and you always like typed, like you literally typed on the keyboard one of the properties wrong or you did the wrong case or it didn't serialize right because you forgot something. <clears throat> Excuse me. So there's a lot of um, you know benefit you get just by syncing the models. Um, so keep that in mind. But let's say you're ready to go. You want to you want to go headstrong into automating these forms. So after you've created the model, part of that process, the second piece, the same Yeoman templating file, also creates our you know I forget you already came up with the term, but I'm going to say it wrong again. Um, but our our form our form control when we're talking about the whole entity, right? The form group. Entity. Form group, thank you. Yes. Our, our form group for what a customer ent entity looks like, right? Um, so that's going to be the second piece it's going to create. And now, at the end of all of that, here's what we have to be able to move into the next episode. We have a model on the front end that's matched uh, directly to the model on the back end. So we know as long as we use those data types, they're going to match up. We have a form group for every entity in our database, every entity, right? So we just said customer, but this is times 1,000, right? It's going to create customer, user, customer status, because maybe you want to add statuses, right? Maybe you have another form where you add statuses, uh, addresses, all different kinds of things. It's going to give you what those forms are going to look like from a configuration level for everything. So now that you have the model and you have this configuration, you can go back to your component and say, okay, if I spin up, and I'll just give you a little sneak peek, if I spin up this configuration and I tell it which pieces of it to use, 
can it automatically figure out which abstract form control that I created in the first episode it should put on the screen, right? Can it do that? Yes, yes, it can, John. <laughs> Don't you're it's that was a cliffhanger. Oh, sorry. <laughs> you would not make a good show producer. Chris. No, I'm bad at it. <laughs> you would just be like, here's how it, it you know, uh, what is it? Um, uh, I was about to give a Game of Thrones spoiler, but we might get a yeah, let's not do that. Like it, yeah. I was gonna be like, what if they just said at the end? I'm not gonna say it. No, no, um, that's not that. <laughs> so, so yeah, so, uh, so hopefully that kind of shows you where we're at, and I think we'll give you some, um, gist in the show notes to see some of these pieces that we're talking about because i think it's helpful to do that um now it's not going to be the whole picture because we have a bunch of like interfaces and objects that build our form controls Um, but i think it's it's going to give you at least a good idea of you know what you're looking at um and then we'll go into you know how do i then tell this configuration how to build the form right because that's a piece we haven't talked about yeah absolutely all right so so I think that's a real good, um, uh, you know, recap. recap of, no, <laughs> I think it's a really good recap uh, of, of what we've covered. Now, I think that we should just give a little bit of time here for some final thoughts from each of us on this type of thing. Uh, yeah. And then uh, and then we'll we'll let it go for the next episode. Yeah. So, John, um, I'm going to give you my final thoughts here first on this. I, I've got a few yeah. and I'll try and keep them brief. Um, one thing is, is I wanted to point out that, uh, clearly if you're part of a team or a project, uh, having all this stuff sort of automated for you or, uh, derived from the SQL table, you know, there's, there's some really good benefits for you. Uh, you get to, um, you know, you get to have all this sort of built for you. You don't have to spend your time on things that are, um, uh, just sort of repeating the same action over and over again. You don't have to keep in sync what you did in the database, what you did in the model, and what you did on the front-end model. Like, there's a lot of benefits for you. Uh, but I'm just going to point out something that I don't know that is obvious right away. And that is, uh, there's a lot of things that you'll change when you're doing work on a project. You know, you'll 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 modify tons of files. You'll make lots of work. And as John indicated, you know, back in Angular JS, all you had to do was type a property wrong with a different camel case or a different capitalization schedule than what you did, or use an underscore where in the back end there wasn't an underscore. You know, uh, all you had to do was that kind of problem. And uh, what would happen is nothing would work, and you wouldn't really be sure why. So uh, when you automate things like this. What I'm trying to point out is it actually makes your debugging life a lot easier. What could possibly be wrong? Well, once we have a rock solid design on how the SQL is going to build a model and build the front end model, and we have a rock solid design on how dynamic forms is going to handle those things. Once we've proven that those work, and this is this is really like kind of the thinking of thinking of your debugging the same way you think of unit testing. Once you've proven that something works through testing it out and making it rock solid, you don't have to worry that that isn't working anymore. Like that's not part of your thought. So if you're debugging something that went wrong after two hours straight of coding, eliminating things and saying, well, it can't be any of these is so powerful. It's a really big thing. It allows you to zero in and say, here's the areas that could possibly be wrong. And it saves hours, possibly days of debugging. 
So that's one final thought. Do you have anything to say about that, John? No, I mean, I think that's great. I have my own, but it sounds like you have another final thought. I just have one more quick one. And what I wanted to point out was we rolled all this out uh, conceptually uh, years ago uh, when we first started getting into uh, working Angular and having Angular be our template language. And uh, John uh, took time to put together a demo for our division. You know, and, and we wanted to make sure that demo was powerful. And so we showed off all kinds of cool things. Uh, but the thing that actually got people, the thing that they were like, wow, <laughs> was was that once this template was up and running, we went to the database and we changed the name field of an entity to no longer be nullable. And then we pushed that change and all of a sudden reloaded the site. And now it said that field is required. And people went, ooh, <laughs> like, like, like that was the big thing that they cared about, which, which is funny to me. But, but you know what? If you really think about it, that is super powerful. I made a change to my database, and it changed how my site worked. And that was it. I didn't have to do any other work. And so yeah. <laughs> that's really big. Yeah, and I mean, there is, you know, part of my final thoughts is there is a learning curve with this, right? So we are abstracting and complicating simple things like adding a validator to a control, right? Which, you know, in the Angular world, you just stick it right on your form definition. Um, but we're doing that at the value of freeing up space for you to focus on other things, right? So it's like whenever my wife brings up about moving, I always say, you know, if we get a bigger house, we're just going to fill that house with things, right? Like you're always going to fill your space, no matter how much space you have. And I think of the developers that we support as having a limited space in their heads. And this, although it does, you know, there's that moving expense, right, of moving into a new house. So there's a learning expense here of like, well, now I have this form control definition, like this form group definition. I have this interface. I have this backend model, JSON. I got to run this, this generator. Like those are all things that you don't have to worry about until you introduce this. But the idea is that the cost, the space that it takes to fill up to run those things should be much less than the space it would be to maintain and manage all of the changes you would need to do if you had to focus on this stuff, right? So we're, we're freeing up more cognitive load for them to focus on the challenging parts of the application. And the challenging part is not to add a required tag, right? To put go into the HTML and put the the uh, error check and add the red text like that's just not the challenging part um and like you said i think that's what was so awesome to people is they were like wow like i if i never had to do this again i wouldn't feel like less of a developer you know you know what i mean <laughs> that's um, true. so you know so it's really great to see like that that co- like you, people can visualize the cognitive load being lifted um and, but I think that, you know, I just want to make a point because I'm sure our listeners are experiencing this is this is a ramp up, right? Like this is a concept that doesn't exist in your application. I can almost guarantee it doesn't exist in your application because like, I don't think we got this from anywhere. We made it, you know what I mean? It's certainly our concept we created. Um, so you have to, you know, pay the cognitive load to onboard it, to understand it, to see how to interface with it. But I can tell you, and we know this from years of data, that once you do that, overall, this is much faster. It requires much less thought process, and you can do way more um, with this structure once you have it in place. 
Uh, now, the final thing I'll say is that this is a decent amount of work to maintain. And we have a group at our company, our team, that focuses on maintaining these types of things full time. Not everybody has that luxury, right? Maybe you have one application or maybe you're a team of like five people. Um, that's fine. You can take this and use, like I said, like maybe you just use the model concept, right? You generate your model and that saves work and that's not hard to maintain. Um, you know, you don't need to go all the way. Uh, look for the opportunities and scale it to your use case. Um, but certainly if you do have the ability to dedicate people to it, um, what ends up happening is Chris and I can make a change to this process and it now helps 40 people instead of one person that's asking for it, right? Because we push it out and now everybody gets to take advantage of it. Um, so that's the other, you know, kind of benefit to maintaining this and, and working on that cognitive load is sort of the group benefit, right? The, the assimilation of everybody into this process. Ooh, assimilation. That's Borg yeah. talk. Yeah, whenever I talk about groups now, I just always think of Borg. That's your fault, <laughs> by the way. You made me uh, watch Star Trek. Uh, cool. So, yeah, I think that's uh, that's good. That's a good stopping point. I'm sure everybody's brains are uh, sufficiently melted. Um, and uh, we'll let them solidify for the final, hopefully final, process of configuring these forms, utilizing these base things, these building blocks that we've been talking a lot about, and really, like, uh, I think we'll include maybe a quick video of, of some of the cool things that you can do with this stuff so that you can see it. Because uh, it is kind of a visual concept, right? Like, there's a visual aspect to it, which is really cool to see. I agree. And uh, well put on the, um, you know, likening this to uh, moving. And uh, I liked your analogy there. Yeah, thank you. Sometimes, <laughs> I always say it's not a John Graham point without an insane analogy attached to it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Some, sometimes they're decent, though. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, that's it for us. You want to help us close out? Yeah, I just want to, as always, thank everybody for listening. Uh, we just love doing these. This time flew by. We're almost at an hour, which is crazy because uh, I didn't think we were going to fill the hour at the beginning of this conversation, but it just flies through. So I love doing this, and I just hope people love hearing it. Um, and uh, we've gotten some people that have been reaching out to us on Twitter, which I love. Uh, you can always follow us. I'm at John Graham Dev, and Chris is at Pilgrim Secret. Um, so talk to us on that. That's the best way to interact. And if you have questions or you have ideas uh, for other topics that you'd like us to cover, we'd love to hear them and, and explore those. Um, and as always, if you want to check out our company and what we're doing, you can go to uh, milestechnologies.com, milestechnologies.com slash careers if you're interested in working here and really fully experiencing this model. Um, you can get that, uh, that exposure here. We are hiring remote now. Um, so you don't have to live in New Jersey anymore um, to apply. Um, so definitely check out the openings and apply when uh, when we have one. Yeah, that's good um, to know because I don't live in New Jersey either. <laughs> you live close <laughs> to New Jersey. Um, <laughs> but you don't have to live close to New Jersey anymore, which is the other thing. So yeah, um, so, yeah, so that's exciting because now I think a lot of our listeners could, you know, they're like, oh, well, I'm never going to move to Philly or New Jersey. Um, but now, you know, you can still take advantage of that remote opportunity. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, thanks, uh, everybody. Yeah, I think it went really well. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. See ya.